Um, I'm continuing my study from uh, Sunday morning. I'm kidding. I know that uh, I was a little long-winded on Sunday. I apologize for that. Um, you always I always, yeah, I know. Um, John 18. Um, you guys are done with your coffee. Great. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, we want to again commit our evening to you. Um, Lord, as we look at the final hours uh, of your son's trial and impending death in this uh, portion of scripture, we pray, Lord, as we look at the scripture, it would just jump off the pages and grip our hearts to understand what the reality is and where we stand in relation to you. So, Father, we just commit our evening to you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. John 18, um, we're going to start in verses uh, 28, and we're going to go down to verse 40. Um, let me go ahead and read the scripture. Verse 28, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would have not delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him, and you judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests that delivered you to me. And he says, What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is, is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Notice the commentary here. Now Barabbas was a robber. All right. All right. Now, interesting passage set before us this evening. Now, uh, for some of you who have not been tracking along with us here in John, I thought I'd, give, I'd provide some, uh, some context. We know that uh, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He uh, took 30 pieces of silver. And then they met up with Jesus in the garden uh, earlier in this chapter. And we know that as he was in the garden, he was there agonizing. He was sweating. As the scripture says, he began to sweat blood. And then he is immediately taken for examination to Annas. Now, Annas is the father-in-law of Caius, 
of Caiaphas, who happened to be the high priest that year. Annas himself was a high priest at one point from 6 AD to 15 AD. And uh, again, to become a high priest, uh, for many of you don't know, you have to be a Levite. You have to come from the lineage of Levi. And to me, what I find interesting in this whole passage is Caiaphas is married into the family. He's not a Levi. Okay? He's, he's wed into the, into the family. He's, he's married Annas' daughter. Annas, we were told by one historian, uh, which described Annas as someone who's more fortunate and successful, yet detested and despised by the people. And we're going to find out in a few moments why he was. Now, I'm pretty confident that when Jesus went up to Jerusalem, you know, as a child, um, we know that you guys know the story. He goes up to the feast. He's there with his family and the all caravan up to Jerusalem. And on the way back, uh, you know, the families kind of just uh, congregate. The kids congregate and, and they do their thing. On the way back, they realize, hey, where's Jesus? He's disappeared. Where, where's he at? And they, they immediately hightail it back to Jerusalem. And as they get there, uh, where do they find him? He, there he is in the temple, sitting down with the teachers, listening and asking questions. The scripture says these were the, the doctors, the teachers in Jerusalem. And there he is as a young kid in the presence of these people asking questions. And during that time frame, do you know who the high priest was? It was Annas. Annas was the high priest. Do you know which uh, feast they were celebrating? The Passover. And, if, and here we are in this passage of Scripture, and how fitting. This is the backdrop, the Passover. And unbeknownst to Annas, year after year, that Jesus would go up to the Passover, in his midst, the Messiah was there. Growing up to be a young man, year after year, until obviously Caiaphas took over. Now, when Israel was, uh, was free, the office of high priest was a lifelong position. You held that position for life. You were a high priest forever. But when the Romans came in, their governors came in, the office was for the taken. Because now Rome had the power. They took that power away from the Jews. Now, as you can imagine, being a high priest, that was a very lucrative position to be in. You were in total control. I mean, we've been to Israel. It's, it's an amazing thing to see and the amount of control they had monetarily. The position, as the way most people saw it, was very attractive. Um, it opened itself to intrigue, bribery, and corruption. The office, for all intents and purposes, was up for sale to the highest bidder, and those who would toe the line with Rome. So whoever the governor was, obviously, corruption, bribery, that thing, you wanted that position, it wasn't going to come cheap. Because they understood how much money there was to be made. Annas being extremely wealthy, strategically through bribery, again manipulation, attained the office as a man behind the curtain. He was the guy behind the curtain. He was calling the shots. In the temple courts, Annas had his hand on every financial transaction. If your sacrifice failed inspection, which often it did, they would offer you the alternative, wouldn't they? 
they would offer you the one that would pass inspection. And, and for those of you who don't know this, that when uh, you purchase one of those, sacrifice, those sacrifices, one of those animals, in the temple it would probably cost you 15 times the cost as it would if you were to purchase it outside. So you can imagine he was taking a percentage of that. And then you had the, the money changers, the cur- you know, exchanging currency. You know, we had Jews coming from all over the world. You couldn't use your money uh, into the temple treasuries because that would defile the treasury. So you had the money changers outside. And that, you know, I was talking to Tony. We're talking about this, and he's like, there, there's no overhead in that. All you were doing was exchanging money, and you were charging a fee for that. And on top of that, a fee on top of that. And so you can see how Annas was making a lot of money. He was reaping the benefits of those sales. He basically had tentacles all over the temple precinct. At one point, uh, there was a saying that went around um, that things had become so bad that the shops around the temple precincts were known as the bazaars of Annas. All the vendors, it belongs to Annas. Everyone knew Annas was exploiting the people. And it's no wonder that he and Caiaphas solely saw the temple as a money-making enterprise. And when Jesus uh, chased out the vendors, do you remember what he said in Luke uh, 19, 46? He says, it is risen, uh, written, excuse me, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. As you can imagine, Caiaphas and Annas weren't too happy that their reputation was being marred. He was calling them out. Everyone knew who was running it. So here he is. He's brought before Annas. And he is the first one to examine Jesus. You know, and I began to think about that. I wonder what that was like. You know, I wonder if, you know, Annas being absorbed as to who he was, you know, uh, with all his wealth, with all his prestige, as, you know, again, he's a person who is a high priest at one point, a very powerful and influential man. And he sees Jesus sitting in front of him. And he, I'm, I can only imagine that he just sits there and glares at him. And I'm sure he's thinking, man, I got our guy. The guy has been talking, he's been maligning us for all this time. We've got him. And he's not going anywhere. All this is going to end soon. And we're told after Annas was done with him, he is taken over to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Folks, remember... This is not done in plain sight. We have to keep that in mind. This is done in the cover of night. They bribe Judas Iscariot to betray him. They arrest him unjustly. Again, these are all things against their own law. Um, He's committed no crime. He's taken to Annas. And now he's brought before Caiaphas to be examined. And again, this examination was just a mockery. Um, Jewish law. It's funny because uh, Stephen here, we were downstairs talking and, you know, he's a lawyer. And uh, I began to talk to him about this, this uh, particular portion of scripture, uh, that Jewish law would not allow you to question a prisoner where you might incriminate yourself. Well, Annas was violating that law. So tell me your teachings. Tell me about your disciples. What do they say? What are you doing? That kind of a thing. Well, these are questions that would incriminate you. And, and uh, it's interesting to me because uh, what was Jesus' response? In verse 20, he said, Hey, I spoke openly in the synagogues. I was in the streets. I was in the temple. 
why are you asking me? Ask all those who heard me. I didn't speak in secret. In other words, Annas, you're violating the law. You're the one who's violating the law. Jesus is wise. I mean, look at the wisdom. He didn't answer the question directly. He's saying, ask those who, who, who heard me. But I'm not going to answer your question. And at that moment, we're told, one of the officers struck him across the mouth. He says, is that the way you answer the high priest? In other words, don't you know who this is? Don't you know that this is the high priest, the authority and power this man has? And what he didn't know is in his presence was the high priest. That's who was in his presence, the high priest. And I love Jesus' reply. He says, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, I've, if I've spoken truthfully, then why are you striking me? What have I done wrong? Bear witness. Now, because of Annas' self-interest, they really had no intention of letting him go. If you look at the questions that are raised, they had no intention of releasing Jesus. They, they had a plan. And that plan was to ultimately kill him. And this is the religious sect. This is, we're talking about the Sanhedrin. We're talking about these are priests. These are people who are supposed to be reflective of, of who God is. And yet these are the same people that are, are formulating a plan to kill the Messiah. And Caiaphas, our next guy here, uh, we're told he prophesied earlier in John here in 18, uh, 14, the same chapter that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Unbeknownst to Caiaphas, he was prophesying Jesus' death for the whole nation and ultimately the world. Caiaphas, you know, he thought, we're going to just, we take this guy out, it'll benefit us. But what he didn't know is actually his death would serve a purpose, and that's salvation for man. Now, Caiaphas was not of the Levitical family, as I stated earlier. However, he was a son in law of Annas. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the priesthood by this time was an appointment given by a procurator. It is thought that Caiaphas was appointed by the Roman Valerius Gratus around 18 AD. And he held that position for 18 years, which customarily was a long time for a high priest. So you can imagine for 18 years. And prior to that, Annas, running it for gosh, who knows how long, uh, they were making hand over fist for year in and year out. And they didn't want to leave. Jesus was rocking the boat. No doubt, Annas pulling the strings. Bribery was taken on. And his son-in-law held the, the coveted position of high priest. Things are going good. They held an incredible amount of power. As high priest, he was a leading member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. He and his father-in-law were Sadducees which obviously made up most of the Sanhedrin. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. That's a position they held. Um, Luke 22 gives us great detail into that tribunal. In that tribunal, they blindfolded Jesus, and he basically becomes a human punching bag. You can imagine, here he is in Caiaphas' court, 
with the Sanhedrin and all these men. And I don't read anybody standing up and saying, stop it. There they are. They blindfold him and they begin to punch him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see something coming my way, you know, you instinctively cover your face. You try to protect yourself or you roll with it. Jesus wasn't able to do that. He absorbed all the blows completely. Those are, you know, and then they, and then to top it off, uh, what was their response? Hey, won't you prophesy and tell us who hit you? Come on, tell us. If you're the son of God, come on, tell us who hit you. So you can imagine how vicious they were. And I began to think about that. This room filled full of people who heard Jesus. And I began to think, you know, I wonder how many people were in that room that were convicted over the things he had said the last three years. Things about adultery. Things about the way you treat your fellow man. Things that probably convicted them and now they have the opportunity to say, you know what? Now we have a chance to take this guy out. And I wonder what that was like. Now we have a chance. And finally we're told in verse 70 of Luke 22 that they asked him, Are you the Son of God? And his reply, You rightly say that I am. And in that language, in the original language, it's in the affirmative. I am. I am the Son of God. And that was it. That was enough for them. They immediately uh, uh, grabbed him, dragged him over to the praetorium where we find ourselves here, and they drag him in to go see Pilate. Notice here in verse 28, again, he says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. They led him early in the morning. Again, by this time in, in history, uh, the uh, Romans allowed Jews an incredible amount of freedom. Okay, Even though they were subjects of Rome, they allowed them to uh, govern themselves um, to a great degree. Um, they did not have the power of capital punishment. Uh, there was a, a, a Roman term, eus gladi. It meant the right of the sword. They did not have the right of the sword. Okay? Uh, the official method of capital punishment for the Jews was stoning. Okay, That was the official way. Um, you pick this up in Leviticus 24, verse 16, Deuteronomy 17, 7. However, later in Acts 7, you know, we all know the story of, of Stephen. There he is, and the council's upset. They're all angered over Stephen, and, and he's given them the gospel. He, he starts off in the Old Testament, takes them all the way through, and he says, Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who died. He is the Messiah. You crucified him, and, and what do they do? They take him out, and they stone him. Right? They stoned him to death. So it wasn't like they were against stoning or against vigilante justice. And I wonder, in that very act, if they actually got in trouble with Rome. Because they violated the law. That was against the law for them to do that. You know, when Rome went out conquering most of the civilized known world, Rome implemented her laws in, in the lands she subjugated. And those nations now were subservient to the empire. Roman law was different for its citizenry. Um, and, you know, this became very evident for us. You know, we went to uh, Europe this past year, 
and, and while in Rome, and I was just sharing this with Tony downstairs, one of the things that really stuck out to me uh, with our tour guide, he said, you know, one of the things about the Caesars is that they held the Roman citizen in high esteem. They served the people. And, I, you know, I think on the surface we all agree, say, hey, that's great. But we all know human nature, don't we? We all know that we have this innate ability uh, to want more and have that position of power. But um, regardless, he said that, you know, being that position, a lot of these men who were in authority, it was for a short time. As a matter of fact, a lot of them didn't want to be a Caesar. They didn't want to have that position because it required a lot of them. And they felt, I've done my duty, I'm done. But then they kept pulling them back in. They kept pulling it back in because they governed so well. You know, they managed taxes. They, they uh, 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 would go out in victory and, you know, attend these wars. They were great military leaders. And they, so they loved them. So they held these people in high esteem. Um, but when Rome went out conquering most of the civilized world, again, they implemented their laws. Um, and they had laws for the Romans and they had laws for the non-Romans. Um, for example, um, a Roman was never to be crucified. That was below them. That was for the undignified. That was for the slaves. That was for the foreigner. No Roman citizen was to ever be crucified. If a Roman citizen was to ever be crucified, it had to be a serious charge like treason. Matter of fact, there was a rumor that even Nero at one point was scared because obviously he was in trouble with Rome that they were going to possibly crucify him. And that put fear in him. Now, Rome did execute its citizens by beheading them, but they were never crucified. And that's why when you look at the scripture, Paul was a Roman citizen. How was he killed? He was beheaded. Peter, being a Jew, how was he killed? He was crucified. And, and as a matter of fact, Peter said, you know, I... I don't, want to, I don't want to be crucified like my Lord. He says, crucify me upside down. He felt he was unworthy. So here we are at the Praetorium early in the morning. And the Praetorium, also known as is, uh, the Antonia Fortress. Um, it's an interesting building. It was built by Herod. It was uh, named after Mark Antony. Uh, they were friends. Um, uh, in Jerusalem, as uh, you see the pictures, sits in an elevated position. She is surrounded by valleys, except one area, and that's to the north. The only area that she was uh, vulnerable for, or two, was to the north. Otherwise, she sat in an elevated position. It was a great position for uh, uh, any army to fight. Um, Herod understood this, and he wanted to add a defensive measure so he built this fortress on the north side of Jerusalem. This road that would go into Jerusalem. And he built the fortress. Uh, by the time the Romans came rolling through, they took it over as a military base and treated it as a judgment hall. It would house over 600 Romans, uh, Roman soldiers. Um, and this became a problem um, for the Jews. Because the Romans being there being Gentiles, they were unclean. So there was always this tension taking place there with the Romans. So here they are. Um, they arrive early in the morning and they 
hey, Pilate, we need to talk to you. It's early in the morning. Pilate, I think, has already had enough of the Jews. He's had enough of their culture. He's had enough of their ways. And he's not happy. And then we're told here in the rest, verse 28, uh, they didn't want to go into the praetorium because they would be defiled. Okay? They didn't want to enter a hall because they knew the Gentiles were there. And they're getting ready to celebrate the Passover. Now, if you don't know the rite of, of uh, cleanliness, for them, it was a whole process. Okay? So they had already gone through the ritual of cleansing, and now if they go in, they're defiled. Now they've got to start the process all over again, and they're like, no, we want none of that. You need to come out to us. Again, he's not happy. He's tired of their customs and their rituals. And not only that, he's had a bad history with them. Uh, we're going to get into that in a few moments. And then notice here in verse 29, it says, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Now, Pilate, we're told, he is prefect over Judea. He's a governor. And historically, there's not much written about him. Um, you think about it, uh, Rome had many prefects throughout the empire. Uh, we wouldn't have known about Pilate if it wasn't for this story. Because he would have just faded into obscurity. But if I mention the name Pilate, what do you think about? This moment, right? Judgment, crucifixion. So the very thing he, you know, he, he looked for uh, 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 to be famous. He, he, he desired that. I don't think he desired this. I don't think this is what he wanted. It's like Benedict Arnold. Do you want to be known as Benedict Arnold? No. You know, or Judas Iscariot. These are names that you just don't want to be associated with. And I don't think Pilate thought that this was going to come on his doorstep. And so here he is. Uh, he was a prefect from, in Judea from 26 to 36 A.D. under Tiberius Julius Caesar. Uh, there are writings suggesting that he was from an equestrian clan, which was the middle class, um, the clan of Ponti. That's why he called himself Pontius Ponti. Uh, Bible critics for years said, you know what? This guy doesn't even exist. There might be writings about him, but there's nothing physically, nothing tangible that we can look at historically that this man ever existed until 1961. In 1961, a stone plaque called the Pilot Stone was discovered in the sea city of Caesarea. And there in the amphitheater in Israel with the inscription, Pontius Pilati, Prefect of Judea. Today, there's a replica stone there in the amphitheater. The original sits in a museum in Jerusalem. And you know what's really cool about that? Is I've actually seen it. That, you know, I'm, I'm just looking at this, you know, really cool thing to see because, you know, out of all, you know, you look at the annals of history, this is it. That's the only thing that they can point to that actually Pontius Pilate existed. Interesting that this stone was actually a reused paver used for a staircase behind the stage house of the Roman theater. And it, and it verified a couple of things. Um, first of all, uh, Pilate didn't like to be in Jerusalem. Again, he was tired of the people. Caesarea is by the sea. Uh, he can govern from there. Much better climate for him. Uh, better venue to be at. And he desired to be there. But whenever there's a special occasion, like a Passover, uh, or uh, there was an uprising or they needed to keep the peace, they had to re return to Jerusalem and stay in the praetorium. 
Again, evidently, Pilate is there in Jerusalem at the Praetorium because of all the masses of people that were descending upon the city during the Passover. We're talking about thousands and thousands of people coming to the Passover. You know, uh, Pilate had a reputation for agitating the Jews. Philo and Josephus described uh, some of the incidents that took place during Pilate's uh, tenure. Both report that Pilate repeatedly uh, caused near insurrections among the Jews because he was insensitive to their ways. Josephus notes that while Pilate's predecessors respected Jewish customs, uh, you know, as they came in with their soldiers, they would remove the images out of respect. Uh, Pilate and his soldiers one, at night would come in and then they would put all those images up. So in the morning when they came out, that just... You know, the Jews just hated that. And he knew it. He just knew it would just agitate them and, and the people would just be upset. Um, and he, they would protest. Hey, get this stuff down. Get this stuff down. And they would plead with him. And finally, after five days of deliberation, they, he finally would take it down. There's even a story that uh, uh, he refused to take it down. They finally sent several hundred Jews uh, to the praetorium there. And... Uh, he told the soldiers, wipe them out. And uh, when they came to wipe them out, they laid themselves down. So go ahead, take our lives. Go ahead. But we're not going to allow for this. And that was a problem for him. He knew he couldn't do it. So they won the day. Later, Philo describes yet another similar incident in which Pilate uh, was chastened by Tiberius. Um, he was antagonizing the Jews again. He, he set up these gold-plated shields around the temple you know bearing the image of tiberius and again that's it's it's you're inciting the people they don't want they don't want graven images you know tiberius is a form of god and and they didn't like that and uh philo writes that the shields were set not so much to honor tiberius but as to annoy the multitude the jews protested the installation of the fields at first and he wouldn't remove them and then eventually they wrote letters to, to uh, Tiberius, and Tiberius wrote a letter to Pilate. And that letter, it says that he wrote a host of reproaches and rebukes for his audacious violation of a precedent and bade him at once to take down the shields and have them transferred back to the capital of Caesarea. That was a rebuke from Tiberius. You know, interesting. He understood that, you know, you need to respect the culture. Pilate didn't. He wasn't a nice guy. Um, here's uh, another story. Yet another one. They have a problem. They need water. And he wants to bring water from three aqueducts, or I'm sorry, reservoirs, down into Jerusalem. He figures it's good for everybody. He, he appeals to the Jews. Hey, we need, we need to finance this thing. Uh, I don't have the money to do it. It's good for you. It's good for us. Let's get some water down here. Let's build this aqueduct. They refuse, so he has his plan. You know what we're going to do? We're going to get our men dressed like them. When I go up and make another you know, petition, they're going to get upset, get the crowds going. At that point, they're going to come and create a protest of their own, and they did. Uh, he gets up there. He's, he's up there telling his need. The people protest. They come out with their clubs. They start beating people, killing people. And while that was taking place, some of his men entered into the temple treasury 
and took the gold. Okay? Not a nice guy. Not a nice guy. In describing Pilate's personality, Philo writes in the first century that Pilate had a vindictiveness and furious temple. And he was naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. uh, Referring to Pilate's governance, Philo further describes him as being corrupt, yet he was his acts of insolence. He had a habit of insulting people. He was cruel. He continually murdered people, untried and uncondemned. Not a nice guy. And I, 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 I want to paint a picture of who this man is because as we see him here, Jesus addresses him. We think that Pilate is questioning him, but it, it, Jesus turns the table on him. And this is Pilate. He says in verse 29, what accusations do you bring against this man? Here's a man again who's used to, to just hearing cases. He's hearing cases. So, okay, so what is it you have? What are, what are the accusations you have? And then verse 30, they, they answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Evildoer, cockapois is the word. In some translations, it's the word malfactor or criminal. The idea behind this word is someone who is intent to do evil. Isn't that an interesting portrayal of, of who Jesus is? The total opposite. Here they're, they're portraying him as someone with the intent to do evil when they're the ones who had intent to do evil. Here's Pilate. What has he done? What do you mean he's an evildoer? You're going to waste my time here. And here he is again. They go through all this trouble of going to see Pilate early in the morning. And they're, and they're doing this because they're rushing to prepare for the Passover. They're so concerned about keeping the Passover. They're in a rush. We got, we, got a, we got an agenda here. We need to get this guy dead real soon. They're preparing for the Passover and they've determined he's worthy of death. Yet what, what they're going to discover is they trump up charges that mean nothing to Roman law. The charges they bring up, they mean nothing to Roman law. Now, Jewish law is one thing, but to the Romans, it means nothing. Notice here in verse 31, he says, Then Pilate said to them, You take him, and you judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saint of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Think about that. In that one moment, they un- he understood their intent. He understood they wanted him dead. That was their intent. They wanted this man dead. Here we're not told what those charges are, but if you read Luke's account, in Luke's account, you have the list of charges brought against him, and basically they're charges of sedition. In Luke twenty three twenty two, he says, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Say, what? What do you mean paying taxes to Caesar? Saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Another act of sedition. There's only one king, and that's Caesar. Everyone bows to Caesar. Everyone. Again, sedition under Roman law was punishable by death. Now, As I read this story, I came to the conclusion, and I am convinced, 
Caiaphas wanted this man not only dead, he wanted him crucified. Why do you say so? Well, first of all, Deuteronomy 21-23, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, I think, one thing is to stone him. Okay, they could have done that. They could have taken him to the sticks, stoned him to death. Who would have known? But it serves two purposes. One, to publicly crucify him would send the message, this cannot be the blessed one. This cannot be the one Jehovah sent. Okay? Sending a message to the world, to the Jews, that this is an imposter. This guy has been lying to you for three years. He is not the Son of God. He is not Messiah. Because cursed is everyone. God says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this man is hanging on a tree. Do you understand what he's trying to do here? He is trying to send a message. And second, his death obviously opens the door to continue business. Okay? You know, this may have been his plan to kill one person, but it was God's plan to save everyone. That was his plan. On one end, we see the human element. We see, you know, the intent of killing one man. But from God's perspective, it was God's plan to save everybody. Jesus already told his disciples back in John chapter 3, John chapter 12, in which form he would die. He, he told them, I'm going to die on a Roman cross. They just didn't hear him. They didn't believe him. Now imagine this scene. By the time he's, he's here in Pilate's court, he's pretty beat up. He's here. His face is swollen from the punches. His beard has been plucked. His garments are, are, are stained with blood and sweat uh, from the garden. He's pretty deceitful. And this is just the beginning because the next chapter goes into the scourging and the crucifixion. And he enters the praetorium again. He says in verse 33, Are you the king of the Jews? All four Gospels record that saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Then Jesus says in verse 34, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And I, I, I think Jesus loves this man. He's actually turning the tables on him. He's probing. He's, he's putting the ball in his court. Okay? He's turned it on him. He says, Did you hear about this? Or are, are you saying this? Are you the one who, who thinks this? And I think Pilate was a shrewd man. Uh, no doubt he had a pulse in what was going on in Jerusalem. Uh, and I, I have no doubt in my mind that he's already heard about him. Uh, the scripture says that his fame went through all the land of Israel. People were clamoring to see him. And, and I, I have no doubt, again, that, that uh, he had heard about the miracles. He had heard about how Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, how the, the religious people, the Pharisees, were envious of him. He, that, that didn't happen, again, under the cover of night. He knew that. He had people in all Israel. So he, and because he was governor, he had to know what was going on in the land. And no doubt, I think his own men commented about his arrival into Jerusalem, how he, how he rode on a donkey, and how all the people clamored over. I mean, this guy, you had to, I mean, he was the talk of the nation. He was the talk. 
If the religious leaders knew, believe me, Pilate knew. This man knew something. And I think by the time we get to verse 35, I think Jesus had already been sent to Herod to be examined. Um, when Pilate in Luke 23, uh, 6 7, uh, he had heard how he was a Galilean. You know, he figured, oh man, this guy's a Galilean. Uh, you know, you know, I don't want to deal with this guy. And as you read John's gospel and you read the other accounts, he doesn't want to have anything to do with Pilate. Or, I'm sorry, with, with Jesus. He ha- doesn't want to do anything with him. He doesn't want to be responsible for him. And he says, well, he's a Galilean. You know what? <sighs> Send him to Herod. Let him deal with him. And he sends it to Herod, right? It's an issue he just doesn't want to face. And isn't that like you and I? In the world, right? We're confronted with Jesus. And we don't know what to do with him. We hear the reality that this is the Son of God, and He came to die for our sins. But if I receive Him, that means i got to give up something. Isn't that what you think? I know I thought that. I'm 21 years old. I'm thinking, man, i got my whole life ahead of me. I just turned 21. I got my ID. I mean, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to rock and roll. And then, but my life was hollow. And I remember, oh, man. And I remember going to the clubs, and every club I went to, I would see the same faces Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday. Okay? And after a while, it became like this bad movie for me. It's like, man, there's got to be more to life than this. And then when you hear the gospel for the first time, you're going, it makes a lot of sense. But if I accept, I got to give up a lot. And that's what you're thinking. I got to give up something because it requires something of me. And I'm thinking, you know what? I've had enough of that. And it's, it's left me high and dry. All right, Lord. And remember, tell my friends, I accept the Lord. A week later, all gone. No friends. All right. All right, Lord, this is where it's going to go. Great. And I'm, I'm sure here's Pilate. And he's struggling with this issue. I don't want to deal with this Jew. I've been hearing about the religion. I've been hearing all this stuff. And here comes this guy, and I don't know what to do with him. He's a judge. It's not his first case. It's not his first rodeo. Herod, Herod's examination discloses no results. He's not, he's not worthy of death. And he sends him back to Pilate. Pilate's wife in a dream, or rather nightmare, warns her husband in Matthew 27, 19 not to do anything with this man. Nothing. She says, I've, matter of fact, the scripture says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him. She sent a message saying, have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So he's here, he, he's, he's seeing these religious leaders. They're coming with, trumped up charges, there's nothing there, nothing worthy of death, send him off and farm him off to Herod. As a matter of fact, it tells us that him and Herod were fighting. They weren't getting along. Apparently, Pilate burned a bridge with him, but it says that day they became friends again. Okay? They found a commonality. And Pilate is scrambling, and no doubt he's bewildered. What do I do? I don't know what to do with this guy. Imagine what he was going through. And notice verses 35 through 37. Pilate answered, he says, Am I a Jew 
Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? What is so bad that these men want you dead? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly. Again, the language is, it's in the affirmative. You're darn right. You're darn right. I am. In, again, interesting term here. He was delivered. That word means to deliver one up to be judged, to be condemned. But depending on the context, that same word for delivered could be used to betray. That was kind of interesting. He, they, they delivered him up to Pilate. In other words, in reality, they came to betray him. They, they betrayed the Son of God and they put him in the hands of the Romans. So he says, so you're a king. Again, he says, yes, I'm a king. Pilate has a dilemma. Jesus is saying he is a king. But you know what his dilemma is? He says, but not of this world. See, if he said, yeah, I'm a king, that's worthy of sedition, right? But he says, yeah, I'm a king out of this world how do you how do you uh, uh, convict a man based on that you can't so i'm a king but not of this world how do i handle that Pilate doesn't know how to address that issue he's not making a claim against caesar's throne not his earthly uh, throne he can't and notice the rest here in verse 37 he says for this cause i was born into this into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I mean, he, he, he is, what he's saying here is, hey, I came from eternity. I was born into the world. Right? And what I like about this passage of Scripture is his response in the next verse. He says, what is truth? You know, I struggle with that verse for a long time. I'm like, why isn't there an answer? Do you notice that Jesus doesn't give him an answer? And, and I struggle with that for a long, long time. And I think when he says, what is truth? I think at this moment, Pontius Pilate concedes. He yields. Here's a man versed in Greek philosophy, Roman education. He knows about the pantheon of Roman gods. He sat in a judgment seat as a sentinel of one whose objective was to filter out a truth and a lie. And, and I wonder, I wonder, out of all that, as he sits there in bed at night, having to hear cases and knowing all this stuff, being educated and, and all the gods and all, all that stuff, as he lays there as a man and he says, what is truth? And now Jesus confronts him and he says, I am the truth. And he says, what is truth? At that moment, I think he says, you know what? I've... I've I've said enough. That was enough for him. And his whole world came crashing down at that point. You know, Mark's gospel, Mark 15, it indicates that Pilate seemed reluctant to pass judgment. We're told how the Jews made accusations that, that Pilate said, don't, don't you, I mean, they're making all these accusations. Don't you have anything to say? Don't you have a response against them? And you know what Jesus says? He says, <laughs> 
He answered nothing. And then it says, interestingly, he says, and then Pilate marveled. He marveled. And that word for marveled means to wonder, but it has a deeper meaning than that. It means that he marveled with admiration. With all these accusations being hurled at him, he did not say a word. He did not reply. I really believe that to this Roman who is accustomed to being around the pomp, the aristocracy, being around Caesar and his court, he saw something majestic in the presence of Jesus. He had seen multiple people scourged, beaten, humiliated by the Praetorian Guard. And out of the hundreds of people he had seen in pain and in the battlefield, this man handles it differently than all those people. He has seen it all. He has seen people suffer. He had seen them in the battle. He'd seen all that. He, had, he knows how people respond to pain. And this guy stands above them all. There's something different. He's not responding the way these other people respond. He's cut from a different cloth. Again, pain and suffering weren't new to Pilate. You know, in his courts, he was used to seeing people beg for their life, to have mercy but this man said nothing. He didn't answer his accusers, nor did he answer Pilate. And all Pilate can do is, as the language is expressed here, is he marveled and admired this person. There is something different about this man. What was the, the, the prophecy in Isaiah 53, uh, 7? He says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Just like a lamb. He submitted himself to the Father, and he submitted himself to the full measure of the wrath of God. Man, and Pilate saw this. A man who's accustomed to seeing men in pain, he's accustomed to seeing royalty, and he sees this man, and he is different. And I, you know, I, I'm, I began to think about how how Jesus actually looked at him. You know, we, we look at um, when Jesus was being interrogated by Caiaphas, right? I think Peter or um, Tony uh, shared this last week. Uh, he's being interrogated there, and and then Peter denies the Lord three different times, right? And there's a portion of scripture there, and I don't remember offhand, but he says he looked at Peter in that moment, and that's, that that word means he looked down into. And I wonder if, if Jesus is looking at Pilate the same way. And I wonder how Pilate is responding to this. He's struggling with this. He, did, he wants nothing to do with him. As a matter of fact, the next chapter, what does he say? I wash my hands to this. You can't. You can't wash your hands to Jesus. So Jesus has been examined by Annas. He's been examined by Caiaphas. He's been examined by Herod. He's been examined by Pilate himself and he can't find anything worthy of death. And he can't shake this guy. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And here was the Lamb of God in Pilate's court. Heavy. 
heavy. You know, later on, we're told, you know, uh, as time went on, after this whole incident, he loses his position. He's in Rome. And Caligula, because all the trouble the Pilate's in, tells him, you know what? Just take your life. And Pilate commits suicide. And I'm sure after this moment in his life, struggle with this. You can't walk away unaffected. You know, every person I know that hears the gospel and they don't respond, I'm always fascinated because it seems like their, their life doesn't get better. It gets worse. I have really, I have yet to see anybody's life get better. They struggle with some vice. They struggle with the relationship, but they're never the same. They're never the same. And God doesn't want you there. He doesn't want you in that place. And notice here, he says here, lastly, at the end of uh, verse 38 here, he says, when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault at all. What's he guilty of? Again and again. Annas, Herod, Caiaphas, Pilate himself, he's examined him. He has him scourged. Nothing. Nothing there. And then he says here, hoping to do him a favor, he says, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? It's interesting because this tradition is not seen in Jewish law or in the Scripture. So where this tradition comes from, we don't know. But nonetheless, here he's offering uh, an opportunity to release Jesus. And, and what does he say here? Then they all cried out saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. In, in the other Gospels, it tells us that he was a murderer. Okay, He liked to cause an insurrection. This guy was not a good guy. This guy was already sitting in prison, waiting in condemnation to be crucified. So put your mind in the mind of this man. He's sitting in a cell down below, okay? And he's waiting for crucifixion. Now, um, I can imagine him sitting there, hearing the roars. Who do you want released? Barabbas. And I'm wondering, that whole process, he's thinking, oh man, they're calling me out. They're already calling me to be crucified. They probably come to the door and they pull him out the cell and he's thinking in his mind, condemned to death and you know when you look at people who are about to die their countenance there's something about that moment i'm sure the blood has left his body from all the important parts and he's making his trek up thinking i'm going to die and as he hits the, the what they call the pavement here in the praetorium and he sees jesus and he sees that white marbled floor covered in blood and sees that he is free and this man has taken his place. That's heavy. I'm guilty. This man is innocent. That's heavy. And, and if you think about it, that's the first person he took a person's place for, was a thief, a murderer. And he does the same for us, doesn't he? When he died on the cross, he took my place. First Peter 2 tells us that he bore our sins on the cross. My sins. Let's pray. 
Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, again, we thank you for this passage. And Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that um, we have ears to hear. Lord, that um, we would walk with you closer more than ever before. And Lord, honor you in the things we say and the things we do. And again, Lord, if there's some of us who maybe are not walking right with you, Lord, we would repent tonight and walk with you. And if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would call upon your name and, and Lord, um, accept you as their Lord and Savior. And if you're here tonight, I'm going to just repeat a prayer, and you can just, it may sound strange to you, sounds weird, and maybe you're sitting there going, man, something's going on in my heart. It's the first time I've ever felt this. That's God's Spirit speaking to you. And I just pray that you would just repeat this and, and trust it by faith. Say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. And I ask you, Lord, to forgive me my sins. I believe your son died for me on the cross. I pray you would fill me with your spirit and guide me all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, God bless you.